0: Seems bitter to miss such a good pudding.
1: Hello and welcome to Euro Pudding Season Two. Season Two. Europudding is the European screenwriter's podcast about writing and producing better TV in Europe with weird accents. Very weird accents. Hi, my name is Pierre Puget. I'm a French writer based in Berlin.
2: And hi, I'm Philipp Scherzer. I'm a German writer and I'm also based in Berlin. But who
1: is making this podcast?
2: Yeah, this podcast is made by Sean, the Serialize Alumni Network. We are an association of screenwriters and producers from all over Europe, who went through the Serial writing
1: program here in Berlin. And to know more about our writers, producers, members, serialized or shown, check out our website, showntv.net, showntv.net, And uh, also, take a moment to like, uh, share, leave a comment about this podcast on your podcast app or on uh, our social media. That will help a lot. Uh, thank you, and welcome back. Yes. So, yes, we are back for uh, uh, season two after... Uh, It's been like not a year, but like it feels like a year. It feels like a year, but it was actually last December uh, our last uh, episode, and uh, yeah, I think um, it feels at the same time that a lot has happened and also not a lot. Uh,
2: You really have to think about what has happened. Yeah,
1: because it feels like (laughs) like the world is still in the same loop um, with the extra flavor of the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but it still I mean, feels like in, in the same um uh, uh style. You yeah, know? yeah,
2: in a way. Kind so, of.
1: So, yeah, what, uh, uh, we, we are happy to, to be back and uh, we hope you you uh, get used again to our silly uh, voices, accents and uh, uh, interesting, hopefully, discussion about TV series in Europe. Uh, we will try to be uh, regular at least once a month, hopefully, too, uh, until, uh, I mean, next spring, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, like, definitely. Uh, a I mean, full it's classic be a season. season. Yeah,
2: we're aiming for 24-hour episodes for the season and then maybe another season, another season, another season. Another yeah, season. We'll see,
1: we'll see. So, so uh, please let us know if you have some topics or guests you you would love us to to uh, people to interview or, or topics to address. Uh, uh, Write us at info at europeading and welcome back. So. What happened for you uh, uh, this year, 2022? I mean,
2: the year started really well. I got COVID. Uh, I had COVID again in July. So um, I got, yeah, that behind me. Um, I started working on a me- uh, on a medical show that runs here in Germany on German television. First channel, uh, a day. Um, it's called In Aller Freundschaft die Jungen Ärzte, which is um, quite nice, I have to say. Nice. And I went on a two-way holiday to LA. Didn't do any business there, though. It was just like to get a vacation and funny story though i uh, accidentally had dinner with uh captain harris from the first police academy film or oh, he's, he's basically in morgue police academy films but uh yeah That was fun.
1: (laughs) I have the feeling that police academy movies are are most known and respected in Germany and France, that they are in, in like, the US or or, or other parts of the world, right?
2: Uh, The thing is, like, when I mention it in in LA, like, everybody knows those films. I mean, um, I I don't know if they're that big there, but... they
1: are <laughs> <laughs> okay great you know what great me you know they said don't meet your heroes but you know uh um yeah uh, well sounds sounds good well i also had covid twice so so oh, bad. yes uh, um uh, <laughs> twice in 4 months actually Well, you know uh, uh, april at cerimonia and then uh, a month ago um uh, and actually i'm still like uh, suffering from a bit of uh, i don't know if it's long covid i don't know if it cold like that, but I still have like, you know, like still tired and edicky like a month after, which is a bit annoying, but hopefully, um, you know, it will go away. Uh, listeners, if you have some tips, if you've been there, uh, you know, like, <laughs> like, like please uh,
2: tell me what could help. I mean, the um, good thing is your voice is definitely back to normal. It, it is, you yes. got the bass. Or, or maybe like even deeper
1: because of the of the throat <laughs> Um Yeah, but also nice. Uh, uh, yeah, I think I took it a bit, I don't know. Like, I think turning 40 made everything a bit different. Like, like uh, less worrying about success and finishing and, 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 and you know. But, but I, so I enjoyed my, my year. I, I actually spent a month in the Caribbean in the beginning of the year. So well, that is so, lovely, man. so that was actually very nice. I'm um, so jealous. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm also in a new beginning of a relationship, which, you know, is lovely. Uh, you know, very welcomed. That sounds good. Uh, um, yeah. And, uh, and also, uh, work-wise, I mean, of course… Uh, August, July, I mean, the summer, nothing really happened. So I'm really waiting for uh, September to arrive so that, um, to see where my projects, especially a few projects I have in France that are being read by some platforms, uh, um, you know, see if someone is interested in them. Yeah, hopefully. so well, let's see. And, Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah. And also, uh, um, early this year, we, um, with my uh, great uh, uh, Hungarian co-writers, we got the COCOE grant, which is this uh, uh, international grant for developing series for writers uh, given by the French uh, Ministry of Culture, you know, the Center mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Cinema. And um, so that was really nice because it's a very um, ambitious and a bit daring project. It's called Bluebeard's Daughters. And it's a, Based on a true crime-style killer story, but from the point of view of the victims, so um, it's actually very dark, and we try to 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 you know uh, meddle a bit so it's not too dark with with uh, some kind of fairy tale tone. Okay. It's a very interesting project to to work on, and my two uh, Hungarian co-writers are, are absolutely lovely. So it's a very it's been a very interesting project to to see um, improve over yeah. the months, yeah. And uh, I'm really curious. Uh, so we we. Uh, now are, are like breaking the pilot and so in the fall we will actually like write the script for the pilot yeah. and uh, yeah so this is a very interesting project I'm really happy to to see you know come true yeah so, so a lot of uh, you know both in the air uh, I, I started teaching also a bit more mm-hmm. um, uh, to, to young like filmmakers like, like you know film students and it's it's really fun to to, to see them try for the first time you know like, like thinking as TV series um, all right. Okay. Yeah. So, taking the first steps. Exactly. So, so it's, I don't know, it's been an interesting year, uh, with a lot of different things. And, and, uh, um, I think the lesson in all this is to enjoy the process way more than the, you know, dream of a potential yeah, result. Yeah. And, uh, and I think all of these processes have been, except, you know, being sick, but I've been, um, lovely. So um, it's kind of if you have lovely colleagues uh, that you kind of get along with. I mean,
2: that's kind of, that's what you mean by absolutely. the process in a way. You right?
1: know, great co-writers to work with, uh, a producer that understands what you're doing and it feels like a team work, yeah, yeah. you know. I think all this is, is um, I would say, more important than, you know, have you created a great show or not? And I mean, of course, I would love to create a show. <laughs> of but, course, that's, but, the, but that's the goal. I, I think that's less and less the, the point. And I think uh, a part of the screenwriter's life is actually to accept what the life they... Day to day is yeah yeah, and uh, it's sometimes annoying and sometimes great and and uh, but it's really like like um do each day each week each month feel you know fruitful and 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 and, and fulfilling and, and, in a way and fulfilling and 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 you know even if it can get to charming and lovely you know oh, I, that's that's a good, I, that's a good sign actually. I take it <laughs> um, all right so so cheers to that and I think let's move to our uh, men discussion. So in the last few months the TV landscape seems to have changed a lot. Uh, it seems we are even more little players in a big global game. And for us European writers, it seems even more confusing on how to choose our projects, our partners. And so to start our new season of EuroPudding, we have the perfect guest to try to better understand all the powers at play here all over the world. And so from Los Angeles, we welcome American but global producer Eric Barmack. Hello welcome. Eric.
0: Welcome. Hey guys, how are you? Very good. How are you? I'm I'm living in interesting times, as they say. <laughs> well, they they
1: do say that it's best. Um so welcome and saying thank you for being with us in the pudding. Um let me introduce you to our audience quickly. You have worked in TV production, distribution, and digital media development for over 25 years. You were uh, first director of business development at the sports channel ESPN and then worked for over eight years at Netflix as vice president and head of international originals. You oversaw there the large international team and produced such hit series as Casa de Papel, Kingdom, The Witcher, Sacred Games, Subura, The Rain, Dark, and many more hit shows, which, you know, is a very impressive list. And a bit more than two years ago, you founded Wide Chip Content, a production and packaging company based in LA that has already sold a lot of projects for the global market. And even though I will, we will mostly discuss uh, uh, business and your projects uh, uh, in that episode, I first wanted to ask you how you started working for television because I, I found out actually online that you were a writer, you were. You wrote a sport uh, article and two books, right? One a novel and one uh, essay about fantasy football. So I wonder how did you do that move from, uh, uh, you know, the other side of the desk?
0: Yeah, I mean, most of the decisions I've made in my career have just been following passion and where it takes me. And so out of college, I was a writer as a journalist. I, I wrote um music reviews, uh, for, for jazz. Um, and it was basically a way of getting into, uh, concerts that I wanted to hear for free, uh, cause I didn't have any money at the time. Um, and then I realized being a writer was quite difficult and, um, uh, that I had more of a bit of an entrepreneurial side. So I got involved in some dot coms. Um, One of which was a sports gaming company that then got bought by a larger sports media company. And that took me to ESPN. Uh, When I was at ESPN, I got super interested in international uh, uh, content and what was happening in the international landscape. And then that took me over to Netflix, where they were expanding. Um, At the time, we were only in Canada and the U.S., Um, So we were figuring out how to expand into the rest of the world. And in that process, I became very engaged in uh, what would be um, interesting content to license and eventually make outside of the U.S. So that took me toward uh, creating this international originals group. Um, And the thesis at the time was, uh, you know, 80, 90% of the audience was going to be for Netflix was going to be outside of the U S it was going to feel kind of strange if we were only making original content, uh, from, uh, from the perspective of Hollywood. Um, and then what we found was really that the international content was dramatically outperforming. It was cheaper to produce. It had, um, it, it helped grow markets in particular territories. It was good for government relations and that certain shows like Lupin and Casa de Papel and others had had global audiences. Um, and so that was really my passion. Um, and then that took me to Wild Sheep, where, where I've kind of gone on to the other side and have started producing on my own and have really, really enjoyed that switch.
1: So to come back to to uh, starting at Netflix, like um, uh, what attracted you first in that company, and uh, did you have any like idea of the? double game changer it will be because first of the streaming, of course, uh, uh, you know, idea, but then this uh, uh, what you did, like the, this revolution that, you know, people can watch shows from everywhere, everywhere. And and so like, did you, is it something that you already had the hinge of or did it develop while you were there?
0: I, th- I don't think anybody could quite anticipate it. I think What what was clear at that time was that um, Hollywood was monolithic and very traditional in its approach and that it was ripe for disruption. I I don't think any of us that were there at that time knew how much it could be disrupted or how quickly we could grow. But I think everybody had this instinct like things aren't going to remain the same, like linear TV was going to change. Uh, The method of distributing content was going to change, that users wanted to have access to different types of content from around the world. Um, uh, So we knew that the disruption would exist, but I don't think we knew our place in it. Mm
1: -hmm. And um, what do you, when you started to see uh, all this success of like uh, global stories? how did you like when did you start thinking of like moving to the production side and but still with the same focus on global market?
0: Um, well, I, there was a, a bunch of different reasons, but I would say you know, Netflix, when I was leaving, we were doing over a hundred productions per year um, around the world, and I'd say those productions we were starting to do 10 to 15 shows in big markets like Mexico and Brazil and uh, France, kind of the bigger markets. And, um, I, I, always loved the actual process of finding and making content. Um, uh, but it, you know, as we got bigger and bigger, I was more just sort of on the administration side and, and farther away from the content. Um, I also had kind of young kids at the time and wanted to have a little bit more <laughs> control of my life and what was going on in my, my life. Um, um, and Um, I felt like there was a real need um, for uh, production companies to connect the dots between what was happening in Hollywood um, and and what was happening with with international producers. And so I, I saw a kind of a business case as well.
1: So let's uh, let's focus on your your new uh, um, slate because there's already a lot of projects uh, that you announced. Uh, so for example, your first US show will be with Amazon Studios, a Shelter, adapted from a Harlan Coben uh, book. But the rest of your slate is is mostly like all over the world. We have like Mexican or Portuguese young adult series, a crime drama from Chile, a UK fantasy crime with like Caribbean influence, an interactive yeah. Brazilian series, a Swedish best- bestseller adaptation, and video game uh, um, franchise like the or Kingdom Come uh, Games, or even The yes. Chase, a German action movie written by our good friend uh, Corbinian Amberger. So uh, what is the vision with Wild Sheep? And first, first, why the name Wild Cheap? I was
0: curious. Uh, Wild Sheep is what I called my kids when they were younger. Um, it <laughs> it's also happened to be the, n- the name of uh, one of my favorite novels by Murakami, who's a Japanese author. Um, And so and I wanted something that was easy to remember and fun versus a lot of media companies have these kind of names that feel very almost futuristic. So I wanted something warm. Um, And, you know, the vision, I would say, is a couple different things. One is a lot of producers outside of the U.S. tend to be very, very focused on original ideas and less focused on the packaging. But having been on the network side, I would say that the packaging matters quite a bit. Um, And so, especially in a world where it's very competitive to try to get shows on air, um, it's helpful to have a best-selling book. It's helpful to have a big piece of video game IP or a big talent. um, um, Because you're immediately coming in... Uh, to an office in pitching something where you could say, I know there's a defined audience for these things. Um, And so, um, you know, some of the projects you mentioned, the heart, you know, Shelter is based on Harlan Coben. Harlan Coben's a huge international writer who sells in multiple markets. Yakuza, which is the project that we're doing in Japan now, which has been greenlit, is, you know, it's bit sold 14 million copies around the world. Same thing for the Scandinavian series, which is also in production. This is a, a franchise that sold millions of copies. And so I just thought it was a little easier to build um, around um, big IP. Secondarily, I thought it was going to be helpful to have touch points in both Hollywood and the international communities. So, for example, the Chilean show that we're doing with Canal Trece, we were able to get that show made because there was a local broadcaster and then I was able to bring in. Um, distribution for the rest of the Americas, right? A film that we did with Kate de Castillo, who's a big Mexican star, um, we were able to sell it to Roku here in the U.S. And then now it's it's uh, the number one movie in Amazon in Latin America. So it felt like uh, if I could come out and get access to big IP or big actors and also help connect the dots between Hollywood and um, And international that i would have a good chance of setting up a bunch of projects that was the initial thesis and then from there we would build up
1: i see it seems that that you're ready to also up on projects from very different stages right because uh, and with different clients approach right either producer already platform that you said or network but also i guess also some projects uh very much from scratch um how, how do you what is the best stage for you to to embark on a project
0: tend to be at, at the packaging stage so like i love let's go find a big book that's specifically local let's bring in a big director big producer big writer against it let's let's take a package out to people i, I just it just comes from where i sat on the other side which is a lot of times i'm looking at a you know, so Netflix which is is this a genre that is gonna play big is this sort of uh, a story that would have a big built-in audience and then is it going to be executed well uh, by talented um, talented people um, and so I love that stage but but because I'm small you know because we're not a studio you um, we can come in at different points, so we have the ability to finance small gaps in in budgets. We have the ability to act as a sales and distribution um, outlet, um, and then most of the time, we're just a traditional producer that's packaging things up.
2: How do you actually like when you look at a project? How do you choose it? Is it like because when you when you told me uh, told us about your like your career career so far? um it i had the impression that you might uh, the decisions that you make you go a lot with your gut feeling as well and um is this is this like um a thing how you choose your projects that you take is it like uh, that you uh, go with your gut feeling or is it more like that you uh, analyze like the market what might be successful or is it like a mixture of both
0: a little bit of both and i would say like i'm always trying to look for things that have the twist at the end that is fairly differentiated. So, um, for example, the Scandinavian show that we're doing is a crime thriller. It's a murder, you know, there's a murder that happens in the opening scene. It has to be solved, but it's being solved by a trained, uh, young female immigrant assassin. And so I think, okay, well, you know, we're (laughs) going to do something in Scandinavia Great to do something in crime, but how am I going to be uniquely great at finding yet another show with a 60 year old cop who's kind of crabby and grim and has a dark view on life? Like, let's go find something that has not that's in a genre that's familiar, that hasn't quite been done before. Uh, Similarly, in Mexico. We I was working with another producer to sort of say, like, we want to do something that's a whodunit that's sort of in the shape of Knives Out, because we know that that type of story works well, but we haven't seen a lot of it in Mexico. And we felt like in our thesis was that if if we did get the right material, that you could get a big ensemble cast around it, um, because that type of film hasn't hasn't been done there yet and it's easy to shoot it's contained locations it's you know something you could do in five or six weeks not months and months um, and so that that played out right so that was the the film that we announced with Netflix and we have a massive cast, Manolo Cardona, who's in uh, Ken Matosera and uh, Regina Blandin and Stephanie Caio and, and Aaron Diaz. It's, it's a massive cast. and But the thesis, the premise started with, we know that something like Knives Out is compelling globally, but we haven't seen it there. Um, and then a third example would be, um, we're in production now on a show for Amazon India, Uh, that's a follow doc it's a music doc um but the story is about this guy ap dylan who uh, became the largest hip-hop artist in india during the pandemic but more or less from making music out of his house in canada where he had immigrated and and so it's like um you know, we know that music docs are big, but something that is a specifically interesting music story with a twist that's appropriate for a particular market that compels me. And so those things are always a little bit gut oriented, but it's also like thinking about the strategy of where are most of the producers trying to get material made and then, and where is it crowded and where do you have more running room? You know,
1: so, It's interesting. So you already really talk like this mix of packaging and kind of original angle development. Um, And at the same time, I I still have the bit provocative question of like, why, why do you think you can make this uh, development better than local producers?
0: Well, I I don't think I can. I think, uh, I think that uh, part of what I'm doing is working with some of the best producers around the world. So, you know, the Scandinavian story, we're working with FLX and um, in Mexico, we're working with Pravioto who's one of the best uh, directors, film directors there. Um, uh, I think part of it is also bringing something to the table. So like we're now, Uh, packaging up um, a show in the UK, um, Obia, which is a supernatural crime story. Um, But we went out and optioned material that won the Brit list, which I'd say is the most important screenwriting competition in the world. Uh, So I'm not trying to come in to local markets without some ammunition. You know, I'm always trying to sort of say, here's a book or game or talent that we have access to. And you know, part of my pitch, such as it is, is also you're you're very good at doing what you're doing in Italy or France or Mexico, but there's also a value in having somebody on your team in the U.S. and in LA who can find um, other ways to get things financed uh, or made. Um, So you know, for example. Um, uh, we worked with a really, really great Scottish producer, Claire Mundell. She did the cry on a, a movie that had, you know, gotten a number of, of credits and, and some financing in Scotland. Uh, but they needed that last piece, and that piece came from uh, Library Pictures, which is um, associated with CAA here. And you know, if if I didn't have if I hadn't connected the dots, if Claire hadn't done her work, that these things wouldn't have gotten made, but collectively we made a stronger team. Um, And part of it is also just having the humility to say like, I don't need to act like a studio. I don't need to be the only person that's owning IP or running the show. Part of it is just, can I be, can I effectively join teams of people that are already great at doing what they're doing?
1: I mean, it, it sounds like a one great answer to this feeling that we are more and more connected in this global market, but at the same time, where it's difficult to always know at which uh, you know place to to look at it. Uh, and and in Europe, like um, I'm curious how you feel about how the landscape has shifted, like not only with uh, Netflix and other streamers, but like in the recent. Like weeks, uh, uh, HBO Max, you know, canceling production in Europe, or or you know, uh, before the big summer, like uh, a lot of the meetings I had felt, um, you know, that a lot of developments fell down, a lot of like uh, resets uh, uh, has happened, uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Kind of a bit more risk averse. Also, there's a yeah. you know uh, economic crisis looming on the horizon. So, so um, how, how do you see the the, the European landscape uh, um, reshuffling itself in the in this coming September?
0: Um, well, look, I think these things ebb and flow, and I think there was this. Tr- um, I would say let's start with the macro and then work backwards. Which is one thing that's super clear to me is the old model of TV production and distribution is never going to return. So I do not believe, for example, that US studios are going to um, syndicate their content to European networks uh, so that the eight to 10 o'clock slot is going to be two U.S. crime shows and two comedies. That, that doesn't make sense to me. What has proven um, through Netflix and others is that um, tastes are more diverse that local stories matter more, that there's a global landscape and that Hollywood is going to be part of a larger landscape, not the other way around. So if you start with that premise, then you would say over the next 20 years, there's going to be more and more euros spent on European productions. Those productions are going to increase in quality and scope and the ability to distribute them around the world is going to change now um, into the positive. Now, short term, and I would say defining short term would be over one to five years, you do have like this ebb and flow of retrenchment of original groups growing and then consolidating. And, you know, there's a lot of nervousness in Hollywood these days in general. I, I think these things may ebb and flow, Um, but I don't believe that French or German production is going to decline at all. I think it's, um, it may lead to a world where in the short term, there's more co-productions. Um, maybe the local networks are also feeling like their streaming services are going to be competitive and that they're going to have more confidence in those things. So like, I think via play, for example, in Scandinavia is a very good example of a local player that's. Um, aggressively spending on local content. I'm not answering your question super well, but I basically think there's going to be volatility, but long-term there's going to be continued investment in European content.
1: No, I think this is a bit more optimistic than 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 uh, uh, I felt <laughs> the people be uh, l- last month the or last two months ago. Itself. So so uh, uh, that that's good. Um, you, you touched a bit on on the idea of co-production, which is a very European uh, um, thing, and but at the same time, it feels like you know with the model you 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 successfully uh, uh you know did at, at netflix and now that you with the project you're developing you you seem to be you know kind of the the flag bearer of the global you know local is global uh, you know small project but very specific in a country becoming global phenomenon uh but at the same time there's a tendency for some writers and producers to try to hope to do this Big co-production, and our show is called Euro Pudding. A bit ironically, of course, but you know, to to where do you see the, do you see a balance between these two type of production, or, or do you have definitely a a preference for 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 one of the two?
0: I have a preference, which is I think that when you go in this like thing where you're trying to satisfy all audiences, you lose the authenticity of it. If Casa de Papel had been written. Outside of the viewpoint of a Spanish uh, creator, I think it would have lost all the integrity, which is that there's something about the show that's not just a bank heist, but it kind of has to do with social messaging that is very specific. The same thing with Squid Game in Korea, and to a certain extent, same thing with Lupin. Um, uh, in France. Now what I do think is happening is these shows are pro- with global audiences are proving that talent can shift around the world. so um, so Lupin, for example, was r- written in part by someone from Britain. Um, and so I think it's possible that talent immigrates uh, to more and more shows that are different. I think the point of, the, of you, has to be local, basically. I think as you start to get away from those concepts and you're trying to have something that satisfies all, you end up satisfying no one. Yeah,
1: I think that's an interesting uh, uh, way to look at it. And and I I like this idea that that talent can still travel and even though it brings a lot more headache in translation and, and who reads in what language and you know like, like uh, um, I've been asked sometimes to write fully French local shows in English because you know like the, now the, the commissioners are, are, are in LA um, so, so which of course make it lose its specificity at some point uh, but also gain in you know making sure that it, it becomes global and, uh, and I've been lucky to work on 1899 you know in the translation of, of Dialogue for, for Netflix and uh, now also on a, on a a new show from Scott Frank. Uh, And and so that's been very interesting to see, you know, what is possible, but at the same time, it brings a new, a new lot of question of in the, in the flow of the, of the process.
0: That's right. But you know, 1899, which uh, I'm sure your audience probably knows, but is uh, by the creator of dark and is a story of a European immigrants crossing on a boat, uh, to the, to the new world. Um, and then terrible things happen, that's basically it. Right. Yep. Um, uh, that story in and of itself is a local story. It doesn't mean you can't have multiple nationalities or something that, that plays into it. It's, but it's, it's authentic to things that actually happened during that time period.
2: I mean, it's also, if it's done well, you kind of have that phenomenon of the more specific you get, the more universal your story kind of becomes in a way. I mean, that's the perfect thing that you're looking for at the end of the day, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right.
1: I wanted to do a little like a comparison between, you know, LA type of development to European type of development, because, I mean, we talk a lot in this show about, you know, like kind of the... The weak link in Europe is often development, because you know we have a, a network of very small companies who we take only a few projects, don't have a lot of uh, budget for for development. There's not a lot of uh, uh, of money put in concept or even in certainly not in pilots, uh, especially not on spec. Uh, and and it seems that of course one of the big experience of of Hollywood. People is great development because, in a way, a uh, good spec, good quality concepts have always been the the, the best value uh, there for like decades. Um, do, do you would you agree with that? And 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 maybe this is um, what you're doing with your your approach is maybe trying to help uh, uh, European producers better develop uh, their ideas. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Uh, yes and no. Look, I'd say there's a craft to how big television is done in the U.S., and it starts with things like writers' rooms. And so, for example, you know, the show that we're doing um, uh, in Japan, Yakuza, we have kind of a, a mixed writers' room, and it, the the um, the commissioner wanted um, to have a certain style to how the show is done which is kind of an action series and so it's a mix of Japanese writers and American writers and we're super excited about that but I'd also go back to the fact that like the US represents what 3 or 4% of the world's population but is producing has produced traditionally 80 to 90% of kind of the television that's globally distributed and I don't think we should conflate uh, a, a business model with creative superiority. It's kind of a bit of an artificial construct that that Hollywood is better at this just because they've distributed more. And in fact, I think there's learnings to be had from Europe, specifically um, markets like Spain and Scandinavia, where shows tend to be written by one writer and it's slower and it's less scalable on some level, um, but you also get television with incredible points of view. You know, like, I don't think you could say that the crime writing tradition in the U.S. is better than Scandinavian crime writing tradition. Um, And it comes from the fact that that one writer sits for a year and really thinks through the whole story. And it's not watered down by a writer's room. So I think what's going to happen is essentially the world is going to be less binary. It's not going to be the case. Um, it, sorry, When with Spain, you'd say the world of melodrama, like melodrama is superior in Spain. The world of soap operas is superior in Turkey right now. So um, uh, what could happen is there's going to be more mixing and matching. See, so more lupans, more um, 1899s. And over time, there'll be kind of all sorts of hybrids of how development is done.
2: How Easy or hard is it to navigate actually all those international product projects from LA? It's like do you do like I mean just as we are doing now uh, lots of like online writers rooms, online meetings or have you actually like since covid hit have got also got back to like traveling around a lot?
0: Um yeah, I mean it, it taught me something which is that uh, I used to spend a lot of time going to productions and meeting with people and all of these things. Uh, and I realized how uh, useless I was on set, but that meaning um, I, I feel like 90 percent of what a producer should be doing is optimizing the success upfront, And it's usually The right material focusing on scripts and um the right people involved um now um you know networking certainly helps i'm going to go to mia and in rome and you know just um uh, what i've found is that over the pandemic kind of my new the ability to find new people dried up a little bit, um, um, but it, it's certainly the case that most of what I could be doing is is just by being um, uh, uh, good and thoughtful in um, working from here. What What is
1: uh, uh, for you an ideal pace of a development, you know, uh, uh, from like the beginning idea when you feel like you have the right either IP or, or concept, the right people? working on it like like what is you know how long ideally even though we know tv is very difficult to predict in that in that regard but like what what would be the perfect pacing of of this early stages before production
0: it totally depends on the project um you know the film that i mentioned that we we're doing in mexico came together relatively quickly some of the projects that i have um that are now going into production, you know, we're taking, will take up to two years. Um, uh, I, in my old age, have become much more zen. Um, And, you know, when I was at Netflix, I tended to have almost a kind of impatience of wanting things to happen um, fast and to get shows out quickly. Um, I think what I've realized is you just sometimes can't control the process. And um uh, you know, we've I've since I started this company, we've had shows that were initially passed on and then six or seven months later somebody came and picked it up and um uh um and then shows that seemed like they were gonna go straight through in four or five months take much longer. Um I just don't think you have that much uh control over it. And so for me it's satisfying and important to have um dozens of projects going around the world um uh, so that you know there's always things at different cycles
1: and i know that it's also very different for each project but like uh, i'm as a writer i'm quite curious the practicality of the documents that is the most important nowadays because you know in the old school uh, uh, before streamer uh, Hollywood like the pilot was the main currency but it seemed that it has changed quite a bit and, and uh, uh, what is the, the document that, that is for you the most demand uh, the most work and that is being sent then to find the partners and maybe sell a project nowadays
0: um, well we spend a lot of time on a kind of uh, presentation uh, uh, software called Canva which mm-hmm. uh, And I sort of believe, and this is because I would say as a network executive, I had limited attention span that you should be able to pitch a show in 15 minutes or less. Um, And so how do you on a 10 to 20 page presentation explain why this is a must have and how do you explain we spend some time on the quant side, which is how do we explain what the potential audience would look like? Um, Why is the story unique? Um, um, And then, you know, what's essential to share about the plot and the characters? Um, Almost always, I felt like when I was on the other side, um, uh, presentations were too long, that presentations would get caught in the weeds over this or that detail and it would lose the sort of like, this is the the market we're trying to hit and here's why. Um, so I I try to come from the perspective of what I would want to hear if I were on the other side.
1: You're talking uh, also about movies and you actually seem to have on your slate more and more movies. Uh, do you know something we don't?
0: Yeah. Well, I don't know what you know, but <laughs> I would say that, um, in the world of streaming, you know, on the series side, it's very difficult, um, uh, to get things made, um, without having a network on board at the start. And if the the network is a streamer, they're going to control all the rights and you're essentially in a kind of work for hire relationship, which I love and uh, I'm having a ton of fun with. Um, but I also want to be able to build up a business where I can, hold on to certain sales rights and distribution rights. Um, and I think, uh, um, on the movie side, there's many, many different ways to get financing. Uh, there is a need to do, um, kind of commercial stuff on a reasonable budget internationally. I think like basically, um, there's a whole world of international art house. That's that is a world that I'm not in. Um, so, um, that's very well understood and competitive and hard to get into. Um, uh, but like female led thrillers, uh, rom-coms, uh, elevated horror, all of these things, there doesn't seem to be quite enough of, and because you can make films like that on reasonable budgets, you can go both to streamers and other distribution models to get those films out, which I think is really interesting. I guess our final
1: question would be what uh, series or movies you're working on now that excites you the most or maybe something else you heard that you would have loved to, to develop yourself, but like what, what, uh, what are the next project that you're really excited about?
0: Well, we're making a lot of progress on a sh- uh, I don't know if it'll be a film or a series, but it's called The Chase, which is a uh uh german uh kind of fast and the furious uh car chase uh heist thing and i think it's just interesting because uh europe should have more action car type franchises than it does um and i'm not, I'm not exactly talking about the transporter which feel felt like it was geared towards um the us in some ways um, so I'm excited to see whether we can nail the landing on, um, that, um, this, this kind of, uh, this invitation to an assassination, which is a film that we're making now in Mexico feels truly differentiated to me and special. I think it's interesting to think about Who Done It as a returning franchise outside of the U S because that, that hasn't been, um, that hasn't been done a lot. Um, And I'm very, very uh, excited about Yakuza, which is a big video game adaptation. Um, But really, I I love what I'm doing. Um, uh, I love all the projects that I'm on. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds
1: that way. I mean, I'm really interested about all of this, like seeing more... uh more action, like, like European action that feels like, like that it understands our, our spirit here would be, would be great. And yeah, cause I mean, I love the games. So, so I'm really curious about uh, what what you do about that. But and, also and, just
2: like reading that slate, it sounds like really exciting. I mean, when you just have a look at it and it's like, okay, this feels like a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I try to not take it too seriously. Like we're not doing um, a huge political show. If we're doing Uh, Crime. We're trying to do crime, which obviously is a super popular genre that has a twist, um, that can have some fun to it. But we're commercially minded um, at the end of the day. So um, yeah, I'm excited. Great.
1: Actually, I realized I forgot quite a question that I'm sure ties into this last answer is, um, especially for European screenwriters, what would be your your advice on, on, uh, not not topics, of course, because everyone, but like, like maybe how to see our jobs in this new landscape. Uh, um, What, if you have an advice for, for writers?
0: Um, Well, mostly the, the arrow is pointing up. I mean, you mentioned 1899 and, um, you know, we talked about Lupin and like mostly the, the, the thing that I always find, um, uh, So I work on the the drama board at Mia, for example, and so we see a lot of things. Is that, um, uh, some sometimes I'm seeing scripts where it's not clear to me who the audience is. That it could be an interesting topic, but they haven't said. Like you know, we try to only go out with something where we feel like there's at least four or five people, four, four or five networks that we could sell to, and that that beyond that that there's a Reasonably big audience, um, and uh, um, a lot of material you see in Europe is super interesting and well crafted, but um, uh, contained or small. And so, you know, I think we're uh, uh, encouraging writers to think like, how can we really disrupt a genre? How can we make something super um, big and entertaining and commercial? In um, certain markets are better at it than others, like Spain and Turkey, for example, it's almost all commercial. Um, but France and Germany and sometimes Italy um, can be a bit more serious and um, TV doesn't have to be that way.
1: Yeah, so it comes back to having fun and maybe aiming a bit a bit higher. Great. Sounds I think like a perfect conclusion That's exciting. <laughs> Well,
0: thanks for your time, guys. I appreciate it. And, well, thank you for
1: uh, your cool. time. And it was very insightful and a great way to start our new season. So, uh, well, have a good uh, working day in LA.
0: All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Thanks. Right.
2: Man, that was an amazing interview, to be honest. <laughs> I have to say that. I mean, um, what I take out of something like this, it's like to just... You know, to have like more fun in my job, to be bolder, and I feel like after an interview like this with Eric is, um, I feel like I have, a lot, I have a lot of energy to do something new and stuff. You know, I mean, how how are you? How how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I think um, even though that's not something we all always want to hear, but like think about your market and your audience is. Um, you know, should not be like, like taboo or a bad word. You know, like, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. I think that that's part of the thing. We do stuff for people <laughs> and, and, and the more we know who these people are, the, the, the better we can, we can write for them and, and, uh, and yeah, have fun and, and be, be more free. Um, And yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's a great approach to, you know, like, like at the same time, respecting all the, you know, markets and countries but but trying to 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 be a bit more original to bat for for something uh, higher and, and um um yeah in, in a way that's not surprising because that's in a way you know in essence that's what you imagine when you imagine oh big you know, Netflix, LA producer trying to do uh, uh, content all over the world that, that you want this kind of like
2: energy because he's seen both sides. Like when he was working with Netflix, he 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 listened to presentations a lot and now he's doing the presentations, uh, trying to sell a show and to be, I mean, the, the, the the clearer you are with your, with what your audience is, what uh, market you're in and, and what the story is, of course. I mean, that's the stuff that we uh, should hear every day because sometimes I think as a writer, you, You get up so much into the, I don't know, you get lost in the nitty gritty and everything that uh, a clear message like that, you sometimes forget a bit about that, I think. So to hear that again, I think is like, it gives you a lot of energy to write and to have fun in your job.
1: And to continue being, you know, excited by our job, I figured I will just um, recommend a few of the TV series that I really enjoyed the last few months. And uh, weirdly, they are all on Disney Plus, uh, <laughs> uh, and they're not the one you think. Um, so I'm curious now. So uh, um, to be honest, all of the Marvel Star Wars I found, you know, almost unwatchable. To be honest, <laughs> uh, like I don't see how it's TV series. I I I understand, and really, um. I'm not blaming writers or, or anything because you know it's such a big machine that that I you know you can imagine how how meddled all this is. Too many right? cooks, yeah. But, but, like many but, cooks. but like it seemed like like not not worth it uh, 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 to me at all. But I have to say um, one of the most amazing and touching uh, series I've seen uh, for a long time is Dope Sick, which is a Hulu in the US, but Disney Plus in Europe uh, uh, show. Dope Sick, which is this kind of uh, almost journalistic exploration of the, the the opioid crisis in the US yeah. uh, with Michael Keaton as a, as a doctor who, uh, prescribes these uh, uh, opioids to his like you know mine workers uh, uh, patients, and then become himself addicted, and 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 then in parallel the big rich family the Sacklers who you know are peddling these these. Yeah you know, poison. You, you uh,
2: kind of see all sides it, of it. Right? Yeah.
1: And, and it's so, it, it's so, it's demanding, but it's, it's respected it so, so much, you know, it it changes time zone all the time. Like it's, it's like it's sh- it shift years, every scenes almost, you know, and, yeah. but it's, it's very compelling and, and I was very moved and, and, um, irate by it, which I think is good. Like this is, you know, it's like good old angry drama. You yeah, know? yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it uh, kind of makes you angry that something like yeah, this actually. Exactly. Uh, happened
1: and, and I way. think that's very, um and of course, we can talk about the irony of it being on a gigantic Disney uh, Corporation conservative place. But anyway, that's a discussion for, <laughs> for anyone else. But but, but uh, um, still, it very, very compelling, smart, necessary drama uh, on a very, very different tone.
2: I, I, yeah, I, slightly different.
1: I, I also really enjoy uh, Only Murders in the Building, uh, which is this very light uh, Crime mystery set in a building in New York with Steve Martin and Martin Short and Selena Gomez being like a absurd trio of wannabe podcaster, true crime podcasters, uh, trying to solve the crime that happened in their own building. Uh, it's, I don't know, it's charming and uh, season two is even better. Uh, they really land, uh, really well the story and the mysteries. Um, it's just, I don't know, extremely pleasant to watch. Uh, definitely, uh, definitely. Uh, it's I only slight, uh, but it's, it's, um, I don't know. It's charming. Yeah. Uh, um, I only
2: saw season one, but I'm really curious about season two now that now that you've yeah, mentioned yes, it, yes. So. it. It starts strangely, but really,
1: really this stick the ending. And um, uh, another recommendation is Light and Magic, which is a documentary about ILM, the uh, Industrial Light and Magic special uh, effect studio mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. George Lucas created yeah. for Star Wars, and mm-hmm. war you know, some of the best special effects makers in the history of cinema. Um, The documentary is written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan, who, uh, of course, is a very famous screenwriter of some, you know, the Indiana Jones and Star Wars movies, uh, especially the Empire Strikes Back or the first Indiana Jones. And so, you know, he knows these people very well, but and he's also a really good storyteller. And so as a direct, it was really the right choice for such a, you know, um, I don't know, it just gave me back the, you know, why? I do this job, you know. Like, is it
2: about the? I mean, it says light and magic. So, is it about like a bit of the magic of the movie industry? And
1: absolutely, like it's you really know, like it's, uh, you know, like like uh, of course not. all movies should have special effects, but like this magic that cinema can be, and and it, it's very well done. It's very charming. Although the all the interviews are very nice, uh, and especially Phil Tippett, as you know, always great to to see him yeah. talk mm-hmm. about his craft. The you know the puppet and the the you know. Uh, 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 live action
2: um, uh,
0: yeah yeah, yeah like, that's always um,
2: like amazing to see I yeah. mean I, I went to a Labyrinth screening once and it was like you see uh, yeah they they had discussions afterwards and the puppeteers and and yeah, it's I mean, amazing
1: to see it's that. just you know the little magic of cinema and so uh, 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 maybe that's a bit boyish thing I don't know but like I really I really enjoyed watching this um, uh, I think it's a six part documentary on Disney Plus and finally uh, I uh, was able thanks to Disney Plus in Germany I have no idea for the rest of the countries because it's a uh, Paramount Plus now uh, show. And I think Paramount Plus is coming in Europe very soon. So so in the next weeks. So I don't know where you can find this in the future. But for now in Germany, it's on Disney Plus. Uh, it was on Amazon, the first season on Amazon. Anyway, I'm what talking, I'm talking about The Good Fight. And I think I already recommended The Good Fight season one and two on that podcast maybe I a year ago. I think you might have. I'm uh, not
2: sure because the last episode was a long time yeah,
1: ago. But I managed to catch up thanks to Disney Plus on season four and five. And boy, this is still... Amazingly funny and and I mean it's you know I wouldn't say it's my you know like a, 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 a easy watch or dirty watch but it's not that at all because it's so good it's yeah. just so yeah. brilliant and and daring and I mean the you know the the kings the the couple who is writing and creating this show are, are you know I mean. There now with my heroes, you know, like, like I'm <laughs> we just a, try and get them on the podcast. I'm just amazed by by uh, what they do and what they can do on on the good fight, while still respecting, even though it's a it's now a, a, a platform show, but it's still respecting the old school, you know, network mm-hmm, type mm-hmm. show. You know, it's it's the lawyer, you know, legal drama um, uh, with with the good mix of horizontal and and, and vertical uh, narration and structure. Uh, but I don't know what they do with it, just. Uh so I watched this when I had COVID and it's it was the best medicine. Did you binge it like the entire day? Or? Like almost, yeah. Oh, okay, uh, okay. It it's just great. It, it it was it made me so uh happy. So so yes, these are my uh recommendations, all on Disney Plus, at least in Germany, I don't know about the rest of Europe. But uh Dope, sick, Only Murdered in the Building, Light and Magic, and The Good Fight.
2: I think that's a lot of recommendations for this episode. I think I will do my recommendations next episode then. Nah, you can say one ah, thing. Should I? I yes, I do it. Okay, so a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. I went to the cinema a lot. Uh, I was like uh, really. Uh, I almost went out of the first time in years. I almost went out of the cinema when I saw uh, Elvis, which I didn't like uh, uh, at all. It's like to me it was basically just one giant uh, music video. It didn't really get into the story, into the characters, and yeah, it wasn't really my cup of tea, to be honest. Um, on the other hand, I really enjoyed uh, Jordan. Peel's uh, Nope, which um, I seeing the trailer, I had no idea what it was about. And um, I don't know if I should go more into detail other than that I was really positively
1: surprised by it. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed that it's such a big release that we have no idea what it is about. <laughs> uh, everything
2: we, you say, you basically spoil it a bit. So it's
1: kind okay. of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't been to the cinema in you know nine months but uh i think nope might might be the might break the yeah it's the, kind the, of like the, the record it's
2: something that you don't expect and and then it's entertaining and funny and scary and uh yeah exciting and uh yeah to me it completely worked um other than that i watched a lot of documentaries over the last couple of months and one of them i really really loved and was really shocked by was uh, it's on netflix uh woodstock 99 because mm-hmm. i kind of remember like that they did a kind of a remake of Woodstock in 1999. And it was a disaster, but, right? Yeah, it was a total disaster. And that documentary completely captures this in a really entertaining way. And it's also really shocking, to be honest, And by what you see and how kind of, uh, I don't know, how kind of they, they did a lot of things wrong during the festival. Totally... Um, underestimated the weather um, and um, yeah kind of how the the kind of the, that mob mentality kind of built up through over the entire weekend and how it all ended in chaos um, yeah but the documentary I have to say uh, um, uh, tells the story of this really well so, right, so I really it's recommend this one Woodstock, Woodstock 99 it's on Netflix, on Netflix. great
1: And that's it for this episode of EuroPudding, the first episode of season two. Yeah. Even though that means nothing because it's just <laughs> the same feed of podcasts. We just have fun. To us it means that. something. Yes. <laughs> uh, so thank you for listening, being here. Uh, please recommend it to your friend, share it on your uh, social media. We'll be back very soon with more exciting guests and topics. You can find some show notes and links of what we talked about on our website, europewinning.com or in the uh, podcast app you are using at the moment. Yes, and please tell your friends about us. Subscribe
2: to us, like us wherever you can. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just type Europudding, leave us comments. We'd love it. Or get in touch at com. Thank you, Phil. Thank you.